According to the most recent census data, for the first time in American history, the majority of babies, children under one year old, are now kids with color. Until just recently, the majority of babies were listed under ethnicity as non-Hispanic white, no longer. The U.S. is changing demographically. The media has dubbed this phenomena as the browning of America. Demographers say that by the year 2042, our country will no longer have one clear ethnic majority. Everyone in America, white or black or Hispanic or Asian or other, will occupy minority status. Perhaps the term term minority will become obsolete since we'll all be one. A Duke University law professor, Jedediah Purdy, points out the positiveness of our country's browning. It isn't that America is beginning to be everyone's country. It's that it has always been everyone's country. And that fact is harder and harder for anyone to deny. Professor Purdy points out that the distinguished gents who wrote our Constitution began with the phrase, We, the people... Today, that phrase is truly being fulfilled. Purdy's observations are good news. Of course, it remains to be seen how Americans will react when everyone occupies a minority status. Will racial distinctions become less important and will we really rally together as we the people? Let's hope so. Or will we maintain our narrowing ethnic identities and wage war on anyone not like us? Well, time will tell. Sadly, for much of American history, the majority race has sought privilege and held sway over the minority. America is a story of a people with high ideals. All men are created equal. But from the Civil War to civil rights, living up to our ideal has proven to be an ordeal. Only in recent decades has America's struggle begun to rectify some of its long-standing inequities. Having been raised a member of the ethnic majority, it's difficult for me to grasp the humiliation of being made to ride in the back of the bus or to drink from a separate water fountain, let alone being inspected as a piece of meat and sold in the slave market. The injuries and the scorn fostered on the minority can be unbearable. In most situations, minority status brings with it indignities. And disadvantages and unfairness and character defamation and and, and, uh, misunderstandings, if not outright hostility and persecution. Just ask the Jews in World War II Germany or the Irish immigrants in early 20th century New York City or the Kurds in Saddam Hussein's Iraq. I mean, those in the minority often are treated with disdain and seen as an underclass and viewed with suspicion. I'm sure all people consider it safer and more advantageous to be in the majority than in the minority. And yet there is another shift in American demographics that I want to talk about over the next few weeks. To me, an even more important way that a new minority is taking shape in our country. In October 2012, for the first time in our nation's history, America failed to possess 
a Protestant majority. Numbers-wise, evangelical Christianity is in decline. The biggest shift in religious affiliation were among the nuns. Not the N-U-N-S, but the N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. Rather than Christian, almost 20% of Americans now identify themselves as having no religious affiliation at all. In 1990, 86% of the United States population labeled themselves as Christian. But in just 20 years, that percentage had dropped 10%. In 2010, only 76% of Americans self-identified themselves as Christian. Of course, on the surface, that's still a huge majority. Yet how many of those who call themselves Christians really live a biblically informed and inspired life? <clears throat> There's such a thing as a cultural Christian. You know, in Israel, you meet Jews who are proud of their ethnicity and their cultural heritage, but who merely dabble in Judaism. Many of the founders of the modern state of Israel had a proud Jewish pedigree and observed Jewish custom, but religiously they were agnostic or even atheist. They were Jews only in terms of culture and race. You also encounter cultural Muslims. They were born into Islamic families and countries, but rather than ascribe to Sharia law, they embrace a more Western way of life. Yet they still label themselves as Muslim. It seems to me that the same phenomena occurs among many so-called Christians. American culture is steeped in Christian-inspired customs and traditions and institutions. People born in the U.S. have a history. They have a tradition shaped by Christianity. Thus, they call themselves Christian. They celebrate Christmas and Easter, but in reality, they give little to no credence to truly following Christ. They pledge allegiance to one nation under God, but there's not much in their life that they've actually brought under God's scrutiny and under the authority of God's Word. Match their lives up against biblical Christianity, and you're hard-pressed to spot any evidence that these folks are following Jesus in any tangible way. And yet they call themselves Christians. It's just a cultural Christianity. Recently, a polling company, the Barna Research Group, tried to get a better handle on the proportion of real, biblically devoted Christians living in America. They divided Christians into casual and captive. Casual Christians were those who, minimally, who were minimally active in applying the Bible to their lives. They held Christian convictions, but only when they were convenient. Whereas captive Christians made a real effort to apply the moral and spiritual truths taught in the scriptures despite their circumstances. The researchers identified 66% of confessing Christians to be of the casual variety, while a slim 16% were captive committed followers of Jesus Christ. I think this is more our reality. 16%, if that, of today's America is truly serious about Christian faith and devotion. The vast majority of Americans today, that's a whopping 84%, have adopted a different set of values. So much for the United States being a Christian nation. 
In today's America, genuine, substance-filled expressions of Christian faith are now frowned upon. Crosses and nativity scenes are banned on public property. Members of our military are under ever-widening restrictions over how they can express their faith. Politically speaking, there's no reason to mourn the absence of Christian presidential candidates any longer since a person with biblical convictions wouldn't stand a chance of getting elected anyway. And the person who dares to trumpet biblical sexuality and oppose same-sex marriage? Well, hold on to your hat. You'd incur less wrath if you beat your mama. Today, you can get fired from some companies if you tell a co-worker that homosexuality is sinful. Or worse, you can get saddled with hours of sensitivity training. The one anathema in our modern world is to suggest that there's one right way to approach God. That one religion is qualitatively better than any other religion. Much of our government in corporate America, in the entertainment industry, in the news media, in our institutions of higher learning have all joined in to ridicule any claim of exclusivity. Yet that is precisely the kind of claim that Jesus made in John 14 verse 6 when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The very statements of Jesus put all true followers of His in the crosshairs of a conflicting culture. When I was a child, a Christian consensus existed in America. Not everyone was a Christian, but you could count on the school and the media and the local government to at least support a biblical perspective on marriage and morality. Not to advocate Christianity, but to at least be friendly. You didn't have to worry about your kid going to college and his faith being attacked by a militant, atheistic professor. It was a different America then. David Kinneman, president of the Barnard Group, he sums up what's happened since. The bottom line is, over the course of 50 years, we've become a very pluralistic, multi-faith, and in some cases, no-faith culture. And that is a distinct difference from our past. Other persuasions and belief systems and moralities now compete for the hearts and minds of our citizens. Real Christians in today's America are a minority. Hey, you can mourn what used to be, or you can acknowledge the new landscape and learn to adjust to minority status. Hey, here's my big point. A minority position isn't necessarily a bad place to be. It has its advantages. In fact, some of the most successful times in church history have been when Christians operated as a cultural minority. The first church grew and flourished as a minority among ancient Rome's ruling paganism. The fires of Reformation were lit among small bands of faithful folk living under the oppressive reign of the popes and their inquisition. Even today, Christianity is the fastest growing religion in the world, except where it's the cultural majority. Where it's the minority, it booms. All of the New Testament was written from a minority position. Jesus and the early church understood what it was like to be part of a persecuted fringe. Much of the New Testament only makes sense when read from this perspective. And certainly, this was the position Daniel and his fellow Hebrews found themselves in when they were transported to Babylon. They were a faithful minority. 
Over the next few weeks, we'll be studying the book of Daniel to uncover ways to live out our faith from a minority position. How do we operate in a society where the numbers and the momentum and the politics and the culture are against us and what we believe? In essence, how do you swim upstream? An old bloated catfish can float downriver. But it takes a sleek, powerful salmon to swim against the current. Hey, so you can be a Christian when everybody else in the room is a Christian. Oh boy. But what about, what about your faith when you're made to sit in the back of the bus? How committed are you to Jesus when you feel the sting of prejudice because of that faith? Or when that faith carries a stigma? Or when it becomes a career liability? You see, Daniel and his friends experienced all this and more, but they proved to be a faithful and influential minority. The first half of Daniel chapter 1 explains his predicament. Read with me in verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, which was another name for Babylon, to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Now the story begins in 605 BC. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has been waging war on Egypt and Assyria, and in the process has subjugated the holy city of Jerusalem. The powerful emperor, he imprisoned the Egyptian puppet Jehoiakim and looted the temple of the one true God. We're told elsewhere that God authored Jehoiakim's conquest as punishment for his idolatry. In essence, God was saying to his people, if you want to serve idols, I'll send you into a land teeming with idols. Babel was the birthplace of idolatry. Nebuchadnezzar took Yahweh's sacred treasures back to Babylon and placed them in the temple of his idols. But in addition to these temple jewels, the Babylonians also took custody of certain royal Jews. Jewels and Jews they took back to Babylon. Verse 3, Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and in whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. When the Babylonians conquered a people, it was their policy to choose from among the captives the cream of the crop, the finest young men to be trained and employed in the service of the court of Babylon. Understand, these boys selected were barely bar mitzvahed. They were just kids, 14, 15 years old. Daniel didn't even have a learner's permit. I mean, these young guys were high school freshmen. The Babylonians would take the healthiest and best looking and brightest and most teachable, the most adaptable young men and make them couriers in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. They took the who's who of young Jews. They took them from family and from friends and from home and from all that was familiar and they shipped them 650 miles to a glittering palace 
and the capital of paganism. There were probably more, but we're introduced to four such boys. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Daniel and his pals were POWs. They were prisoners of war. But they were also POWs in that they were recipients of privilege and opportunity and worldly pleasure. You see, life back home in the besieged city of Jerusalem was a dead end. There was one, only one ambition, and that was to, sur- to survive. But Babylon, oh, Babylon, that represented a new world, a new start. Think of these four boys now walking the red brick streets of Babel. They're by the shores of the mighty Euphrates. They're amidst the impressive ziggurats and the hanging gardens. I mean, Babylon was the wonder of the ancient world. Now it's all before them. They've even been given government jobs. But that's where life got complicated. For the goal of the Babylonian king, he wanted to reprogram these young men. He wanted to strip them of their former identities, indoctrinate them in the culture and customs, the language and learning of these pagan Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to wean these Hebrews off their religion, deconstruct their faith in God and make them idol-worshipping pagans. And he designed a three-year brainwashing process with this objective in mind. He relocated them to pagan surroundings. He re-educated them with a pagan curriculum. And then he reconditioned them to have a pagan palate. Notice verse 5. The king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank. And three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Daniel. He's now an undergrad at the University of Babel. And talk about a meal plan. I mean, this isn't the school cafeteria. The king's food was the best money could buy. Daniel's got a meal ticket to Outbacks. And all the wine he can drink. It's a keg party at the frat house. And as if all this weren't tempting enough for young Daniel, these Hebrews were even renamed with pagan IDs. Verse 6 Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. Now here's the flavor of what's happening. The Hebrew handle Daniel, it means God is my judge. But it gets replaced with a Babylonian tag, Belteshazzar, which meant Baal protects. Baal was a Babylonian idol. Each of these Hebrew teenagers are stripped of their God-glorifying names. And they're given names that honor the blasphemous idols of Baal and Marduk and Nebo. The whole process was to break down their faith in the one true God and convert them into good pagans. Sounds a lot like what's happening today to kids who grow up in Christian families only to leave home and enroll in the state university. Immediately their faith comes under siege. And unless they're a Daniel, they're not ready. You see, at home and at church, they're 
probably part of a Christian majority. Thus, they never add muscle to their faith. They never have to live out their faith from a minority status. And thus, they become ill-equipped to take a stand. Here's a scary stat. 80% of animals born in captivity, when released into the wild, get eaten by other animals. Reared in an insular environment, they're unable to cope with the rigors and the harshness of the real world. And this is the plight of sheltered Christian young people who grow up in a fundamentalist subculture and are never made aware of what's beyond the walls of their faith. Growing up in the majority can give you a false sense of security. Whereas minority status forces our faith to survive in the wild. Minority faith learns quickly that it can grow and thrive even in a pluralistic setting. Commentator Alexander McLaren, he has this to say about Daniel. He says, it's remarkable that a character of such consecration as Daniel's should be rooted in a court filled with luxury, sensuality, lust, self-seeking, idolatry, and ruthless cruelty. Yet in the middle of this, there grew up that fair flower of character, pure and stainless by the acknowledgement of his enemies. McLaren seems to think that Daniel remained pure despite his surroundings. But I suggest it was because of the challenges that he was pure. You see, when you're in the minority, you learn to take tough stands. Nothing comes easy for you. Rather than seek the path of least resistance, you realize that faith is a fight. There's things you learn when you're the minority. In fact, it even gets worse for Daniel. As if being renamed wasn't denigrating enough, our text tells us that an even more terrible attack took place on his personhood. You see, in the courts of the Oriental kings, it was a custom to prevent the royal princesses from falling in love with the king's male servants. The king usually had the men castrated. It kept the royal harem free from hanky-panky. Notice the supervisor Ashpenaz is twice given the same title, chief or master of the eunuchs. We also know that Ashpenaz was Daniel's overseer. Could it be that Daniel was assigned to the head eunuch because he himself had been made a eunuch? This means that in addition to all the other humiliations Daniel and his pals might have experienced, they also were neutered. I mean, here's a teenage boy who suits up to play baseball and he no longer has to wear a cup. How devastating is that? Imagine Daniel, this young man, robbed of his virility, confused by new scenery, a part of a minority. With all the trauma these boys had experienced, we might be tempted to expect, even justify, a little compromise on Daniel's part. But Daniel isn't looking for excuses he answers to a new name. He wears new clothes. He has a new address for his mail. He speaks a new language and he's learning a new curriculum. A lot has changed for Daniel. But there's one thing that hasn't changed. And that is his heart. He remains to have a heart for God. Verse 8 tells us, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Notice his concern. It's to not 
defile himself. Sadly, this attitude is so foreign to today's half-baked Christianity, we no longer understand the term. Defile means to taint or to pollute. It's the opposite of purity. Think of a nurse taking a blood sample, then leaving that vial out on the counter overnight. We'd say that the sample was compromised, that we're no longer sure of its integrity, that we now have a reason to doubt its purity. Because of that nurse's nonchalance, it might be something that it's not. Daniel didn't want anyone to question his loyalty, his integrity before God. He refused to say anything or do anything or act in any way that would cast an aspersion on his devotion to the Lord. He couldn't help what had happened to him. His captivity, his place in the palace, the strange customs and language, his new name, his new occupation. But he could control what he put in his mouth. The food he ate, the libations that he drank, they were his choice. He wanted to be sure that no one mistook where he stood. Being a Jew, Daniel was bound by the Old Testament dietary laws. To ignore these laws would have been to disobey God. Certainly an idolatrous king wasn't keeping kosher. In addition, the meats and wine served to a pagan king had already been officially dedicated to the nation's idols. Thus, for Daniel to eat from the king's table, it could be interpreted as him participating in the worship of the false gods. You see, it wasn't a matter of how far he could compromise and still please God. Daniel didn't want to run any risk of defiling himself and offending God in any way. It's true that Daniel was being assimilated into the culture. To some degree, that's expected. We all swim in the sea of culture. We can't escape. The tide impacts even the person who chooses to swim across the current. No one can completely divorce themselves from the times in which they live. Daniel spoke like a Babylonian. He dressed like a Babylonian. He learned Babylonian protocol. He went to a Babylonian school. He occupied a Babylonian post. He answered to a Babylonian name. But understand, he never became a Babylonian at heart. God still governed his values and his appetites. You see, Daniel knew where to draw the line. Do you? He wouldn't compromise his faith in God just to eat at the king's table. Daniel respected Nebuchadnezzar in his position, but he bowed only to God. He put his fate and his faith into God's hands, not Nebuchadnezzar's. Here was the question. Who's your daddy, Daniel? And that's the question you answer every single day in one way or another. Who's your daddy? If you really trust God, why are you cutting corners to keep your job? Or lowering your standards just to cozy up to certain friends? Daniel refused to let the king dictate what he ate. He would stay loyal and he would consume only what pleased the Lord. If you want to be a Daniel, there is one trait that you need. You need conviction. According to Webster... Conviction is a strong persuasion. To me, it's an unbreakable allegiance. Do you have beliefs that are set in stone? 
Have you made promises that you've poured out in concrete? Daniel's conviction was to never defile his God. It reminds me of the fellow who proposed marriage to his girlfriend. She replied, well, when you save a million dollars, I'll marry you. Three months went by when the eager fiancé came up to him one day and said, Honey, how much money have you saved? Discouraged, the young man shrugged and said, 75 bucks. The young lady, she thought for a minute and then she replied, 75 bucks? Well, that sounds close enough to me. Obviously, her previous position wasn't a conviction. It's one thing to know what's right, even to desire to do what's right, but neither knowledge or desire constitute a conviction. Daniel purposed in his heart. He knew where to draw the line and he drew it ahead of time. You see, a conviction is morality with some muscle. It puts heart into holiness. It is an allegiance coupled with determination. Conviction is virtue with a backbone. Author Frank O'Connor, he writes about his childhood growing up in Ireland. He and his friends would run through the orchards. When they came to a wall too high to climb, they'd throw their hats over the wall. That meant that if they really wanted their hats back, they had no other choice but to find a way over that wall. And this is conviction in a nutshell. Conviction is throwing your hat over the wall. That despite the obstacle or the uncertainty or the impossibility, you're not going to run or back down or turn away. You're going to go over that wall one way or the other. Daniel doesn't know how he's going to solve his problem. He has no idea the outcome. All he knows is what he's not going to do. He refuses to defile himself. You see, when you're the minority, the only Christian taking a stand, you need conviction. And there's something else that you need that you don't hear a lot about these days. Along with conviction and determination, you also need some savvy navigation. Again, notice verse 8. Therefore Daniel requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. He purposed in his heart, but then he requested, he made a request to the boss. This is so instructional. Daniel doesn't pick at the cafeteria. He doesn't go on a hunger strike to protest the pagan diet. He doesn't turn over his tray in some form of demonstration. He doesn't get mad that the Babylonians don't share his convictions. I mean, what do you expect from pagans? I mean, it's like a Christian who's appalled that his company stays open on Sundays. Well, why shouldn't it if its only goal is to make a buck? Or why shouldn't your buddy get high when he's got nothing else to live for but a good time? Or why not have sex if all that matters is feeling good? Why do Christians get angry and upset when heathens act like heathens? I mean, what do we expect? Without a biblical understanding for resting our soul and for moderation in our practices and for the proper use of sex, our morality won't make sense. Daniel realizes his supervisor doesn't understand his concern. And so he makes a polite and honest request. And I like this too. He shows his courage. He explains his reasons. He doesn't just blame his desire for a modified diet on food allergies. Or a finicky palate. 
He's up front with the issue. He says this is about his relationship with God. He says, I don't want to defile myself. Where there's a Christian majority, the rules and the laws usually reflect biblical values. And everyone is forced to comply. It's easy to make right decisions in one sense. But when Christians are the minority, the establishment may oppose rather than support ideas of godliness. And suddenly Christians have to speak up and they have to attach logic to their obedience. When the world isn't sympathetic to our cause, we've got to navigate their resistance. You've got to know what's essential and what's not. You've got to be able to explain your position. You've got to know what hill you're willing to die on. Where, in turn, can you negotiate? You see, being in the minority requires some navigation. This is what Daniel illustrates in verse 9. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. Ashpenaz has a big point. Why should... Why should... He be expected to risk his neck over Daniel's convictions. I mean, the king's diet is supposed to produce healthy servants. If Daniel and the boys end up puny, it's his head on the chopping block. Daniel claims to have faith, not this Babylonian. And likewise, we can't expect secular people to have Christian faith and values. In one sense here, Daniel is asking the chief eunuch to show more faith than he has. Sometimes we make the same mistake. We ask our neighbors or our co-workers or our boss to honor our convictions without considering their concerns. And when they turn us down, we squeal persecution. The problem is that we need to learn to navigate the situation. We're told, so Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had said over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies as you see fit, so deal with your servants. He just threw his hat over the wall. So Ashpenaz consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. Notice Daniel doesn't agitate the situation. Rather, he navigates. He even negotiates. Sometimes Christians climb up on their self-righteous high horse to point to what's wrong with the world around them without ever offering any helpful alternatives. Here, Daniel suggests a test. He says it's not just about convictions. It's also about the Babylonians' objectives. The king wants healthy civil servants. So Daniel decides to give the king what he wants as well as please God. He says, let's set aside 10 days for a trial. The Hebrews will eat off the value menu. They'll get their veggies and drink their Evian. While the other court candidates scarf up the Babel burgers and the Babel brew. If the Hebrews turn out fitter and fuller, then who's to complain? Everyone's happy. Daniel has a clear conscience, Nebuchadnezzar has healthy helpers, and God gets glorified through their faith. Here's a modern day example of a similar situation. 
Let's say your sales manager wants you to lie about the product because he thinks it'll boost your sales. What he really wants is more income, more sales. What God wants is your honesty. Thus, a little navigation is required. Propose a 10-day test. The other guys, they can do it the boss's way while you do it God's way. In 10 days, we'll see who sold the most. You see, don't just mandate, navigate. Find a way that both sides can win. Then put the pressure on God. If God wants you in that job, He'll work it out. You see, who's your daddy? If God is your father, He'll supply you what you need. Dare to be a Daniel and trust God. Verse 15 tells us what happened in Daniel's case. And at the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all of the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. And there's no biological reason the vegetarian tacos would have made their flesh fatter and fuller in just 10 days. It was God's blessing on Daniel's faith that won the day. And this stayed true for the next three years. Verse 16 tells us, Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. For three years they ate the veggies. And God blessed them in a meaty way. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king, and in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Daniel proved that faith in God can do more to accomplish the king's goals than the pagan diet. And this needs to be the strategy of a Christian minority. Yes, the numbers are against us. Yes, we're operating in hostile territory. Yes, the gallery may boo. But rather than be intimidated into the closet and shy away from entanglements with the secular world, we need to be brave. And we need to put our convictions on display. We will win over hearts and minds when the hollowness of secularism is exposed by the logic and beauty of faith. I love verse 21. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. From the time of this story until the first year of King Cyrus was 70 plus years. Daniel was in the minority, but he outlived the emperor and even the empire that took him captive. He served in both the Babylonian and their conqueror, the Persians' courts, for seven decades. Daniel was a statesman. He was a government bureaucrat. He was a professional politician. He traveled among pagan people, went to pagan schools, learned pagan philosophy, was surrounded by pagan practice, yet he remained loyal to his God. He did it right. It can be done right. Rather than being tainted by a pagan world, Daniel remained a true witness. See, Christians assume that we can't really get involved in the world without expecting some degree of compromise. 
Oh, we got to be flexible with our, with our convictions here. If we're going to really get through these courses or get through this curriculum or, or, or work out through this, this job. But Daniel is proof that just the opposite is true. Navigation, yes. But capitulation, no. Early in his life, he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. And he lived out that conviction for the rest of his life. When I was a kid, we had those inflatable punching bags that were made out of plastic and they were weighted down in the bottom. You could slap them or you could knock them over or you could punch them as hard as you could and they'd bounce right back up. Once a father, he asked his son if he knew why the inflatable man always bounced back up. The little boy answered, because he's standing up on the inside. That's how faith survives when you're the minority. You make sure that you're always standing up on the inside. Purpose in your heart today not to defile yourself and offend your God. Don't be a Babylonian. Be a Daniel. Let me ask you, if you were to categorize yourself this morning, would you be a casual Christian or would you be a captive Christian? Daniel was held captive by his allegiance to God. I think we all should dare to be a Daniel.